Hello everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Happiness in Humans. I am in London and I'm speaking to Tim Lomas, who is in Seattle. How are you doing, Tim? I'm good, thanks, Matt. Nice to see you. Nice to be with you. Yeah, thanks Thanks for coming on, Tim. Um, people always say, oh, you've got a great job that you do, Matt. And then I looked, obviously I dropped you an email to ask you about um, your um, architecture of happiness paper and I was reading about you. You got one hell of a, a job. Tell it. Tell it. Tell us about your job, Tim. Well, thanks, Matt. Yeah, I do feel really lucky to have this. So I'm I'm in Seattle, but I work for the um, Human Flourishing Program, based at Harvard. Um, so I've been with them, like officially for about about a year now. Um, yeah. And it's yeah, it's a wonderful team of people. It's really it's really incredible what they're doing. It's it, the director is this uh professor tyler vanderweel um yeah. he's got such an interesting background like he's an epidemiologist you know but then yeah became very interested in flourishing and then wanted to kind of bring the methodological skills and rigor and etc of epidemiology to bear on like human flourishing which is which wow. is fantastic for and our, he's for, assembled for our listeners can you t can you tell us what epidemiology is please tim well i think it's mainly like the etiology and spread of disease and it's often kind of situated in public health and you talk about physical diseases like malaria let's say um yeah um, and they have a, like a, a lot of sophisticated mathematical modeling and all these really interesting techniques to study epidemiology that have been in place for decades i mean centuries even and then he's really kind of bringing that to bear on human flourishing and then he's doing okay. that in a really interesting way he's got like a very interdisciplinary team of people so I'm there. Yeah. There's a couple of psychologists, but there's sociologists, yeah. philosophers, theologians. Um, wow. It's it's and then it's it's such a pleasure to work with this group of people because you can like team up and people bring really interesting perspectives to bear. Like I've written a couple of papers with this one guy, and he's a kind of theologian and historian. And then you know because I'm really interested in history and how ideas evolve, and yeah. he's really in, in, kind of immersed in all that. So wow. It's, yeah, there's such a nice scope for collaboration and working together and so it's um yeah it's beautiful to be with that team so i feel really lucky to be that with sounds them. amazing i want to move to say oh, seattle nice. now tim i want oh, to go and yes. your team it sounds like, oh, like yeah absolutely brilliant fun oh, God. yeah if anyone listening like if you're not been to seattle it's such a beautiful place it's yeah it's amazing i mean we move yeah it's yeah like the nature's incredible somehow there's there's water and mountains like in every direction which doesn't yeah. seem possible but it is and yeah so it's a really gorgeous place and yeah it's good to be here and tim tell us tell us like how did you get into happiness research broadly like how t t tell us about your career what did you start out doing how, how did you get to where you are today well it's a bit of a bit of a winding journey i mean i guess the first thing i mentioned is like before university when i was 19 i went to china to study to to teach english in a, in wow. a city called Qingdao for six months which was beautiful and then like i love being there i mean love china and then you know we got immersed into Buddhism and Taoism um, yeah. and then really had a mind to try and study them practice them engage with them in some way um, and then so I went back to to Britain and then I went to University of Edinburgh and did psychology yeah. you know and then um, you know I loved studying that um, and I was kind of trying to focus on things relating to Buddhism like I did projects on on mindfulness uh, and so on but then also kind of i won't say way late because i love doing it. i got went on a bit of a sidetrack because like well like, throughout uni i was doing music and i was in a band and then when we left uni we wanted to give it a real go of like 
yeah. trying to turn yeah. professional. So about spent about six or seven years just touring and recording with the band, really trying to make a go of it. We need to do a separate episode. We need to do a separate episode with your old band and just to cover that. We'll come back. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to plug it too much, but like if anyone's into ska music, we're a band called Big Hand. We're based in yeah. Edinburgh, so uh, I mean, I love doing it. We, um, we did we did pretty well, but it's just so hard to make money, you know. So we were like yeah. doing good gigs and so on, but like you know, especially now. But even back then, it's it's just hard to make a living off of music. So basically, yeah. by the time we got to our late twenties. We were all thinking we need to, you know, think about the careers and other ways of making money. I, but, you know, I always had in my head the fact that I would want to get back into psychology in some way, you know, knowing that music's not, unless you're really special or really lucky, it's not going to be like a long career. So, yeah. you know, even if we had got a big record deal, I was thinking, how long would that last for? So in the back of my mind, you yeah. know, I always loved psychology and I still was still reading it. You know, because you must have, Tim, you, know, you must have been the only musician who considered how long their career would last for. Because most musicians just like go with the go with the flow. You're actually thinking about. You're actually. Well, I was thinking. I needed a backup plan. <laughs> trying to be yeah. realistic, yeah. Because you know, it's not like we were Bowie or Queen or something. You know, but we would we did okay. But it was great fun, and I loved doing it. But um, you know, at the same time, like just to give you an indication of like my planning. Cause we weren't making, I had to take some other work. So I had like a part-time job as a psychiatric nursing assistant um, yeah. throughout yeah. that period, like, like taking ad hoc shifts and then that would bring in a bit of money. But then I was also still connected to psychology scene and working with patients. And like, that was really meaningful. And I mean, very hard and like quite, it could be a distressing job at times. And it's, a, mm -hmm. they're strange. Imagine. They can be quite strange, dark places. And, but the work felt really meaningful and I was, kind of glad to be doing what I was doing and then kind of also keeping that thread of connection with psychology because you know part of my mind was like well what if I could become a clinical psychologist or a counseling psychologist and you kind of need to have that experience so I was doing that throughout my 20s um but then like late 20s I got a scholarship for a PhD in London looking at the impact of meditation on men's mental health which was wow. like which was perfect well, yeah, was, so that started in 2008 at the University of Westminster it couldn't be more topical to to the current world today could it yeah like they were so far-sighted because like there's a team of people and they put together this phd um research idea so it's the main supervisor was a sociologist called damien ridge like a lovely guy and so his his main interest is like gender and mental health and masculinity the impact of for example yeah. masculine norms on how men engage with their emotions and so on so yeah. And you know this the, the story that men might be socialized into being like half and disconnected from their emotions and then yeah. you can make the claim that that would be you know detrimental to their well-being because they're not yeah. emotionally engaged and then the premise and this turned out to be borne out in the results was that meditation is like a way to re-engage mm. emotionally you know so men reconnecting emotionally so that was part of the story was that the men cultivating emotional intelligence through meditation but it wasn't just the meditation because like it was partly ethnography like looking at them in the context of the buddhist center they went to and buddhism and like developing just wider sets of practices like for example in the buddhist center there's a an encouragement to be abstinent and to cultivate like different loving relationships and like spirituality yeah. and that's all part of the picture so so i wow. so i so the, it was a great phd i was partly uh partly in-depth interviews with them like their life getting their life narratives but there's also like a really interesting cognitive neuroscience element um because one of the other supervisors was a cognitive neuroscientist so i had this crazy little portable eeg machine and yeah. i would like 
carry around this little briefcase. And I mean, I only had four electrodes and a grounding one, but I carry this little briefcase to the Buddha center and then wire them up and then measure their brain waves while they're meditating. Um, wow. And then doing some cognitive tests, which was like, that was super interesting. So it was kind of an interesting challenge too, to triangulate yeah. the, the qualitative data with the, um, the cognitive neuroscience data. Um, anyway, I loved doing, I really loved doing the- Did you find when you were doing that, that, that sort of research, looking people up, analyzing people while they're meditating, did you, did you learn anything interesting from that, Tim? I mean, so much. I mean, I was kind of just finding my way into the whole paradigm of EEG because I hadn't been trained and it was all quite new to me. But can you just you know, explain what EEG is to our listeners, please, Tim? So electroencephalography. So this idea that um, kind of the firing of neurons produce, produces electrical impulses. And then these can like synchronize to produce like large waveform patterns that you can detect even by um, electrodes on the scalp. Yeah. And the idea there's there's different bandwidths of activity and then very just very briefly you don't have to go into details but like different types of activity are associated with different mental states so one particular profile would be associated with like a state of relaxed you yeah. know re relaxation but then another profile will be associated with kind of alertness and attentiveness yeah and then so yeah. one of the signatures of meditation is somehow this like combination of the two where that people are relaxed but alert and awake yeah. yeah um so it's just like another angle because you know, so Tim, can I ask is that you when you describe that, do you mean when you are you saying that when you were looking at that, you was different emotions were showing different um different patterns on a graph? Is that what you mean or have I misunderstood? I mean essentially, although it's it's broader than just broader than emotions and just like mental state more generally. So people yeah. might be feeling calmness, which I guess is could be seen as an emotion, but they're also like attentive. So it's all about the like, you know different cognitive capacities as well and then you can sort of read these to an extent in the the electricity like the kind of the bandwidth profiles that you see emerging yeah when you're yeah. when they're wired up um yeah and it's just like another source of data in a sense because you know you can interview people and i say yeah when i meditate i feel really relaxed when i'm awake and alert and then yeah that's good data but then if you can like corroborate that by saying well actually that seems to be borne out by the neurophysiological activity and yeah. so on so so it's just like another in terms of triangulation it's another source of evidence source of data to make you know to bolster the claim so yeah because you know yeah. we we're making the claim that meditation is a way for them to systematically introspect engage emotionally develop this emotional intelligence and then that came out through the qualitative data but it was also in the the cognitive neuroscience data you know because they also they also did attention tests while they're yeah, wired up yeah. so coming at it from different angles um which was really interesting so I, you know i love that whole process in phd and wow. like it was connected to things like positive psychology you know because i would get into topics like happiness and well-being and meaning and so on and they were all in the phd so um yeah that took me up until 2012 and then the next year i got a job as a as a lecturer at the university of east london as a um yeah helping to run their masters in positive psychology so then i kind of yeah. really just like dive into that field and i really loved that it was great um, wow. yeah so then i spent seven years at university of east london um helping to run initially it was just a master in positive psychology then they combined it with coaching which was cool yeah. kind of to bring in a more uh, practical element and that's still going strong they have a great course there People are interested. Yeah. Um, so wow. yeah i love that experience um, and you've and, and you've you've before we go on to the paper you've you've written some books as well yeah there's yeah there's been a bunch over the years 
um I, what's, what's, I, what's I, I don't enjoy the can, can i just pick up on one of the titles here um yeah i'm guessing it i i, I i've done my research but I'm, I'm worrying in case it wasn't one of your books that but it's um, <laughs> That's all right. the positive power of negative emotions oh yeah yeah well so like the, the background to that one is so i don't know how familiar people are with positive psychology you know but it's generally you know the field emerged really to look at phenomenon that you could call positive positive emotions and so on um yeah. but then i think around 2015 some colleagues and i we started to develop this idea of like second wave positive psychology which yeah. was yeah. for us trying to make sense of trends in the literature where people were starting to really critique the ideas and positive and negative you know yeah. because yeah. you know it could be fairly easy to like just simply categorize things as positive or negative but then yeah. things start to become more complex when you think about it because things can be positive and negative in different ways right so there's like positive and negative valence whether yeah. things feel pleasant or unpleasant yeah. but there's also like positive and negative like utility whether they're conducive to well-being or morality and so on so you yeah. get into these like strange not even strange but this these kind of complexities and nuances where something might be negatively valence but like positive in terms of one's well-being you know yeah. like some some negative emotions they not, might not feel pleasant but they're they're like useful and necessary in terms of like protecting oneself you know yeah. like even things like fear and anxiety like if, that, if that's going to help you navigate the world with more like a bit more caution a bit more proactivity then they can actually be helpful so in that sense they're not negative even though they're negatively valenced and then like yeah. the other way around something could be positively valenced like it feels good yeah. but it might actually be harmful to one's well-being i'm thinking of like yeah if someone's like really optimistic about a given health risk let's say they might just carry on with a certain behavior whereas yeah. if they're more cautious they might stop that behavior and then so just the picture becomes more complex and it's just not easy to categorize things as positive or negative i love that so like, I, I love that I, I love the phrase second wave positive to positive psychology it's, it's a subject I, I covered in my ted talk around around no. this because because it's that because it as you say it can be dangerous and it can lead to toxic positivity is is something right yeah. the, the example we always use is anger like um, right. but, but because we're i mean you're from an academic background we take it from a data perspective i just see emotions as data points now that you right, can learn exactly from. that's that's yes. I, I know that's coming from a data guy but that's just how i see them like and i'm talking about my own emotions now not even the happiness index stuff it's just like i just now think Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> what oh, am I? Yeah. Why am I feeling that emotion? What can I learn from it? I know it probably sounds weird to our listeners to no, hear that. But like, I think that's such a good way of looking at emotions. Like you say, as data, like they're just giving us information. You know, yeah. and in that sense, you know, you can get into these complexities of things being like positive in some sense, but negative in another. And it just yeah. it just makes the whole picture a lot more nuanced. So instead of seeing negative emotions as just you know, like irreducibly and inevitably bad and undesirable and you don't want them yeah like sometimes that's true like sometimes they can go awry or be excessive and then you get into issues around you know psychiatric conditions and psychological issues so there is that yeah. but, but it's not saying it's not trying to flip things on its head and say black is white and negative emotions are all great it's not that like i think a lot of the time they are you wouldn't necessarily want them and especially not if they become excessive and so on there's there is all of that but it's yeah. just maybe it's more like opening up a space in the conversation and saying, well, if you're in like negative emotions, sometimes yeah. definitely yeah. 
not but sometimes they have their role their value and if you can like engage them kind of skillfully and productively maybe you can like harness them in yeah. ways that ultimately do serve one's well-being so like yeah. that's what the book was getting into just trying to take yeah. these different emotions and saying in what ways might these be useful and like conducive to one's well-being is there ways of um not just like tolerating them but like seeing their value even so yeah. it was just really trying to explore that whole territory I love, I love that tim um i'm certainly giving you give, giving that a full read and I, I, I can't wait to get stuck into that um well, thanks tim, i know you're um you're, you're we're all you're tight for time today so i'm, I'm going to get into the research paper um oh yeah for, for, for those that want to google it um google tim lomas in architecture of happiness tim i sort of read the read, read, read the whole thing and, I, and i'll try and it, correct me if i'm wrong but the way i kind of understood what you were trying to achieve is there's been lots of sort of research out there that goes through the history of happiness there's lots of stuff that talks about the sources the, hap the happiness index we talk about the drivers of happiness and you talk about there's a lot of that stuff out there and you can go and read about eudaimonia and, and all these lovely things but you felt it was important to sort of discuss like the actual physical architecture of happiness and and that's yeah. the, st that the starting point of did i misunderstood that when i read your paper no that's right it's like like what's it actually made of that's it. Yeah. you know because so the starting point of this paper was i in fact it's funny we're talking just now a couple of days ago a book came out i, I wrote a book for mit press on happiness and that's yeah. just come out yeah. this week and then so this has a bunch of different chapters coming at happiness from different angles and then i felt you know so one of the chapters is like you say it's like the history of happiness how it's been explored in different contexts and different cultures over time one is like different forms of happiness like different concepts one is like the factors that influence happiness so there's different different angles but i thought it'd be really important to have a chapter on like like what's it actually made of how does it come into being yeah. and then so that chapter was like the basis for this paper because i took the you know then that was kind of initial framework and then I, I worked with a bunch of co-authors to like really develop the ideas people from different specialties um like biology and so on so it's yeah. it's rooted in that chapter and then the idea is to try and explore like what yeah like say what's it like how does it come into being or what's it actually made of which is a strange question in a sense um yeah. because you know like i say back to the book there's different angles on well happiness or any given topic like different concepts yeah. different factors influence it but it's really interesting to ask like how does it actually how is it created not just like affected influence and so on but like <laughs> what shape does it take it's a really strange yeah. question in a sense yeah because it's, it's it's on one hand it's like really ephemeral but then you know we're human beings with bodies and things are producing the states that we feel yeah you know so it was really to, trying to get into that question of like yeah like the architecture like the substance what creates yeah. it it's, it's such an important question and before we sort of get into your findings tim my favorite question that i always love to ask researchers is what's like what was like the biggest once when you started what was the biggest surprise from like th that you found when you started because obviously you're trying to be objective as you can you, you set out your question and so on but was there anything that uh, and this is more of a, i'm asking tim the human being rather than tim the researcher is there anything yeah. that you were going through it that just surprised you well in one sense not really because it's not an empirical paper like it's not like we it's not like we collected results and then kind of analyze the data and then because then you can and often are 
surprised by the the findings yeah. you get yeah you know but but this is like a theoretical paper so it's yeah it's me and my colleagues really reviewing the literature so it's it's not yeah but that said you know going through the literature there would be things that could yeah because so uh, what i mean is on one sense it's not surprising because like, it's me writing stuff that i know about in a sense yeah. and my colleagues but yeah, on the other hand you're going through the lit trying to bring ideas together then there's always things to be to learn and to be kind of challenged by you know yeah. i mean so you know one of the elements because like when we talk about architecture i wanted to like think about different aspects of it yeah. you know because yeah. there's a lot of work on say neurotransmitters you know, yeah, and yeah. kind of the biological and biochemical basis of happiness. But that's only one element, yeah, but it's still yeah. it's, it's an important element. So that was really interesting because, you know, my colleagues would write that and I'd be just really intrigued to, you know, buy that whole literature generally because it's yeah. relatively new to me. Um, yeah. yeah. But I wasn't ever shocked. It's not like, oh, wow, I didn't think that would yeah, be the case. Yeah. It, it was more just like, oh, that's yeah. interesting. That, that checks out. It kind of makes sense. Yeah. I mean, um, I just learned a lot through doing it. Um, yeah, but I guess I wasn't surprised because I didn't have that much of a. It's not like I had one preconceived set of ideas and they were overturned by what I yeah. found. It's more just like yeah. going into it and then. So that's not a very good answer to your question. No, I, I no, it's a, it's a really good point because you're you're what you're saying is you are reviewing literature that you're familiar with and you're trying to, yeah. you're trying to bring it into. I don't want to use the word model, but you're trying to bring it into an architecture that that can move the forward the, the thinking forward, which. Yeah. Which it does from from my perspective yeah. from reading it. And, and even on the biology bit, like I'm a little bit obsessed with mood and food at the moment. Like there's so much new stuff coming out, isn't there, on the link between what we put into our guts, what that oh. triggers, how that impacts, impacts our brain. And it's not like brand new stuff where I'm like, wow, but every time I read something new, I'm like, okay, I'm getting more obsessed with the impacts on food and mood now. Um, so yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I guess part of the challenge was I really wanted to give a sense of the complexity of the picture because, like, you know, some of these types of analyses, because I'm not the first person to kind of write about kind of these, you know, this kind of the basis or the, the way in which happiness is produced. But some of the kind of research would just pick a particular angle or one one element, like, you know, focus on the biochemistry, which is fine. Like, that's yeah. definitely yeah. like a hugely important piece of the puzzle but i wanted yeah. to try and make the point that like it's not the only piece of the puzzle it's not only Absolutely. about you know levels of particular biochemicals neurotransmitters and so on you know so i wanted to bring in the psychological element like phenomenology and socio-cultural perspectives because i just think yeah. all of these come together a confluence yeah. of these different um processes dynamics together yeah. shape happiness so it becomes quite yeah you know, a complex process yeah i was just i was just thinking the same thing i was because I'd, I'd i'd read a load of stuff on food and mood yesterday and i was thinking how important it is for what i eat for breakfast specifically but then my daughter's really ill and that makes me unhappy when i say really ill she has chicken pox so just oh, sorry. But, but when you're going through that it's horrific isn't it oh, so yeah, right. like yeah. that impact that is my immediate happiness is impacted by that no matter what no matter what food I put into my gut oh, and all that right. kind of stuff, like I could have eaten all of the all of the research <laughs> stuff on to make me happy, but it's not going to make me happy because I'm worried about my daughter. <laughs> so, right, exactly. Yeah, right. I mean that's such an important context for like yeah. So you know, like you say, your own your own diet and then physiology. So like one small part of the picture, yeah. given everything else, you know. So 
yeah, so I wanted to give a sense of the complexity of how these states are produced. I was really influenced by, there's Lisa Feldman Barrett, um, yeah. and she has a, yeah. a model of kind of how emotions are produced that I found, you know, very helpful, you know, because she would make the case that people do experience what she calls like a state of core affect, you know, yeah. so maybe you're feeling positively, you know, a state we call kind of pleasure or satisfaction or, or a negative state of sadness or anxiety, but you know, it's like a kind of like, a core feeling but yeah. then the way in which that becomes elaborated and conceptualized and understood is really shaped by psychological and socio-cultural dynamics you know how do yeah. we interpret a given feeling you know yeah um, because like she, she gives a good example like you might have a sense of kind of butterflies but whether that's like a sense of nervousness or whether that's you know how you interpret that depends on the context like it's very yeah. different if like one's going into an exam versus waiting to run a race or, you know yeah. you know or engaged in sport you know so even though the, the physiological sensations might be similar how we can like, interpret that whether it's good or bad how we understand yeah. it and conceptualize it is really influenced by like our psychological state our expectations but then yeah. all of that then then that's the you know our psychology but our psychology is situated in socio-cultural context like what yeah. what concepts does our culture give us to talk yeah. about you know because like this is another it's a bit of a tangent here, but like another line of my research is like cross-cultural perspectives on well-being. I have this project looking yeah. at untranslatable words, you know, so words that like exist in other cultures that we don't have in English. Yeah. I mean, you can get this really interesting territory where different, cultures, different languages carve up the world in different ways and give the people in those cultures different kind of tools for understanding yeah. and navigating experience. So depending on one's culture and one's language, one's going to have a different set of yeah tools for, for thinking about one's experience and then that can affect the experience itself so it becomes this really kind yeah. of complicated con process i was thinking about that at the weekend because over christmas i i reread um george orwell 1984 i reread it about oh, yeah. four times because i've just become obsessed with how relevant the book is okay, and sure. for those that haven't read it like one of the one of the ways that the party want to control human beings is, is to reduce the amount of words that we have to describe emotions. Right, right, yeah. And because it, 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 obviously we work around the world, and like we had someone on from Denmark who was talking. I'm going to murder a Danish word here, and it, and it is actually two English words: arbetsglieber, which oh, means yeah. which means work happiness. But yeah. when a Danish person, it doesn't mean work happiness, as in two words. It just yeah. means work happiness. So we don't in the UK we don't have a direct translate we don't have an English translation of what it means and they yeah. have to explain it to us. So we don't have the language to understand what they describe as well, you wouldn't work in a job that doesn't make you happy. It's like we don't understand it because we don't have that language. Yeah, like we don't have that concept. I mean, and like you say, you can like someone could describe it, define it, and you kind of get a rough sense of what they mean. And maybe you've had that yeah. experience and you do get what they mean, and but then without that specific word we haven't got that history that tradition of like yeah conceptualizing identifying celebrating that kind of experience i mean yeah. that's not to say we can't develop it that's why like writers no. languages borrow words all the time and you see like like hugo is another term right and you find it coming yeah. into books in england and you see it in the bookshop so, so we know we borrow words which we find useful which yeah. is an interesting process in itself um but uh i find that whole terrain really fascinating around just like yeah the language we have how that represents experience and then what it means if you don't have a word for a particular experience That's how that affects point. how you experience it yeah so that was part of the paper is to make the point that like even when we have these like core feelings let's say a core affect the way in which we experience and interpret that 
like is filtered through this like well through many things including like our language and our language comes from our culture yeah. and it's imbued with all the values and traditions of one's culture so yeah. it, you know so you could have two people from different cultures they might have a very similar feeling basic feeling yeah. but it comes understood and conceptualized yeah. in many different ways so yeah, and when you that that I mean that is like yeah that's when you think of it from a technology perspective that's like two bits of software that can't speak to each other if they haven't got the programming language. And yeah, it's, right. It's interesting because because we had Mike Viking on who wrote the Little Book of Huga. Oh yeah, and nice. he was trying to explain to our audiences like our audience what Huga is and and everything. Yeah. And what's fascinating is we kind of as in the English language you kind of start to understand it as like this like cozy word, but I remember oh, yeah. saying. So is cozy something that just happens in is hygge just something that happens in the winter? No, you can be you can have hygge in the summer. So right. like, then, then my next question is: so can you be can you have hygge on a sunny beach in the summer? And the answer is yes. So there's definitely no way that you can be. It, it's so different, isn't it? Because it's cozy, you don't, it is. It's, it, we just we need the language, and, and you're right. Hygge is becoming something that we just use in English now. Yeah, and then yeah and it's taking on a bit of a life of its own in england and maybe in england we start to use it for like wintry coziness indoors but that like he was saying it that's not how they would use it's not restricted to that yeah. like i heard another translate or like a description was like coziness of the heart so you can feel, yeah. feel cozy kind of in yeah the heart. I like so that. even if you're, out, I even if you're that. outdoors on the beach with your friends right so yeah but yeah so that's like a really interesting example then that we kind of get it but kind of don't and then yeah. um but then it's not like we don't know that the interesting thing is like what he describes as a state of hygge it's not like we don't know that but we just maybe didn't have a label for it and yeah. it's really helpful to have a label which is why which is why people start to embrace words from other cultures like but that's how languages evolve in, in part is because like you know we have a state we don't have a word for it other people do we notice that and then we borrow it so to speak as linguists yeah. say and then so it's it's an interesting process but it does, it does yeah. go to show that we can have all these certain experiences that we don't have that label for so this is again all, to go back to the paper like all part of the architecture of happiness part of the architecture is like the concepts we have for thinking about yeah. different states of happiness and, and then I suppose so, the, the, the most obvious one is deja it would be deja vu isn't it like that's totally. a word that that everyone has that feeling yeah and, and then you watch the matrix there's not a way of explaining <laughs> it and so it's like yeah exactly I, yeah and then and you think well i guess you know we could invent an english word now we'll just use the french one so people yeah. just say deja vu and then we have a french this french word in our language yeah. um, and that i mean fact is funny when you get into like language and etymology so much of our language comes from other languages so it's a, it's a really fascinating rabbit hole to think about how yeah. our language evolves and how it affects how we experience yeah you know well happiness for anyth anything really so um like i had this model of architecture but like of happiness but it really applies to I think any really emotional state, any yep. mental state. So yeah, like I say, it's it's kind of built off from these different elements. So there's like there's like yep. biochemistry, but then that might generate certain, let's say, feelings. But then they're they're filtered through people's psychology, like yep. their expectations, beliefs, and values. And then they're all situated within a given socio-cultural context, you know. And then ultimately, it all comes together in this like arena of phenomenology. Like what's yeah. the phenomenology? Like how does it actually? I can't even say that. I'm going to try and say it. Phenomen phenomenology. Phenomenology. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. I've had to practice it. Yeah, phenomenology. <laughs> but yeah, so the, then that's this whole interesting branch of philosophy and psychology, just like how things actually appear to people. 
like yeah. um so is that, what that, like, is that what that the word that i can't say let's try one more time phenomenology what, can you give us the what, the one sentence definition of that please tim well i would say it's phenomenology is really the study of people's subjectivity yeah and the subjective by subjectivity we're talking about consciousness and essentially what what it feels like to be a given person that's yeah. a definition like that comes from uh, thomas nagel he yeah. had this famous philosophy paper, what's it like to be a bat? You know, yes. like there's something it's like to be a bat. It's weird and you're yeah. flying around dark and you have echolocation, but there's some sense of being a bat. And then that's the phenomenology. Yeah. You know, what's the phenomenology of a bat? What's the nature right. of their experience? And then, right. so when you get into phenomenology of happiness, it's like, well, we have the word happiness, but how does it actually feel? Like yeah. what's one's yeah. world like? Does, you know, so there's a sense that it's expansive and there's yeah. words like, you know when we talk about like metaphors there's notions of being high and and up you know yeah. up and down so there's a notion of up associated with feeling good and so there's a sense of one's phenomenological space feeling expanded and you're high within that space and you're yeah. moving quickly there's all these interesting metaphors that we use in terms yeah. of like how that space actually feels so that was the final part of the paper is like when all these different processes and dynamics come together well like what's the resulting state like in terms right. of its its nature we can't just because happy is just a label for it but what does happiness yeah. mean and you might feel light and high and moving quickly through the world you know various you know different ways of looking at it but to, yeah. yeah to get into the phenomenology of like where it all comes together in terms of people's yeah. conscious subjective experience it's, it's such an interesting way to look at all the different factors isn't it because i was talking to my co-founder of the happiness index the other day and you know obviously so there's a certain level of how much people are obsessed with data and he used for five years he tracked his sleep data because you know oh, sleep yeah. has an impact on happiness and all this kind of stuff oh, and yeah. he told me he's stopped tracking his happy his sleep data and i said why have <laughs> you stopped after all these years and he said because if i found out that i hadn't slept much via my data i mm -hmm. felt more tired or unhappier yeah. whereas yeah. if i knew that i had had my sleep then i felt fine and he said it became this like like it's like echo chamber because sometimes you don't sleep that much and actually you feel all right, right. <laughs> like, yeah. like, but he said the data started to like pre-prescribe how he felt so I said, oh, that's well, interesting is that an example of what you mean of like the architecture of like all these different factors that 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 sit around and make up what 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 you're feeling I think so yeah that's a really interesting example that's a good example you know because like you know there's this your friend and he he wakes up having had a certain amount of sleep so his body is going to be in a certain physiological condition yeah but then but then like that's like one part of the process but then now the psychology the psychological elements come in like how is he interpreting this state and then if he yeah. has a source of data that says you've not slept enough then all of a sudden the same physiological state it's being interpreted in a slightly different way is like maybe i am tired maybe i don't i haven't had enough. and then you can see how that creates a certain a spiral yeah. a certain dynamic whereas if he hadn't thought that maybe if he, if he had thought i've had enough sleep then he's yeah. it's interesting because like you say it's, he's woken up in the same physiological state but his mind yeah. is starting to take yeah. it in different directions based on the information he has the beliefs he has the knowledge he has and so on yeah. so like you can see how yeah that's like an important yeah. aspect coming in to help shape this whole state he finds himself in yeah so tim we're already well, well well over the time that you said you had for us so i'm just gonna respect your time and say tim 
yeah, I remember you said when we were chatting offline, you used to do a lot of lot of teaching as well. Um, was was more of your role. If we let let's say we've got, um, I'm a big fan of getting this stuff into schools and and and, and getting kids to learn about it. If we had a group of fourteen year olds listening in now, um, what how would you describe your paper from from what? Let's go. Why why you set out to do it and what and what you found from writing it? I'd say I'd start by saying. Happiness and all emotions are complex states that have different elements in their creation. And it helps us to understand how they're made, partly so we can help people feel happier. Um, yeah. And if we can understand the different building blocks that go to create a given mental state, then hopefully we can help people find these states that they want to experience. I think ultimately the goal of a lot of happiness research is not just to understand it conceptually, yeah. Yeah. But to help people feel happier that's got to be yeah. part of the goal so happiness it's a complicated state with many different building blocks yeah and if we can understand the building blocks together we can like create this you know architecture the building of happiness yeah i love that tim that's not very um, eloquent no i love it and now now in my head you've placed um a lego set i'm imagining the tim <laughs> like because lego have done team ups with everyone why why not can't they do a, a happiness lego set happiness building right <laughs> yeah what just describe what um can you just label these these key blocks for us now what do we have i think the first one was genetics yeah so you know there's a there's a strong genetic component to happiness just the constitution the temperament people are born with and yeah. there's only so much we can do about that so people do have i think variable baselines how happy people tend to be yeah. but i mean the good news there is that's not necessarily completely fixed or stable there's lots we can do to, to yeah. work with our own temperament and to increase our own happiness there's activities we can do so but you know to a certain extent we inherit our dispositions um genetically so one component is genetics another is then you know biochemistry how you know how the neurophysiology of the brain and the body create certain essentially feelings and sensations but i say create it's we're getting into tricky territory here about what causes something you know if i feel happy it's not caused by a neurotransmitter that might just be the way it's manifested or the mechanism yeah but like the cause might just be like a hug from my wife and my daughter yeah. do you know what i mean so it's like yeah. the core it's not the, i'm not saying they're caused by yeah. these neurophysiological uh, the processes but like that, that's like the mechanism the architecture you know so yeah. i don't know anyway that's complicated territory but you know another building block is the neurophysiology which yeah. is um, i think in the paper i called it like the raw material i tried to i tried to elaborate in this whole architecture uh, analogy metaphor so i think i called genetics like the blueprint for the building yeah you know yeah. but then you know then epigenetics is the way the blueprint could be changed by facts on the ground and how the builders have to work within you know what's actually yeah. on the yeah. building site so the genetics is like the blueprint then i think i described the neurophysiological processes as like the raw materials got you the wood and metal and whatnot that it, you know that it's made of and then i think i had psychology as like the design of the building inside what does it look like yeah. um so that's another element you know emotions thoughts but other cognitive processes like perception attention and so on that's all influenced by socio-cultural context yeah um i forget how i deployed that in the metaphor but i think that was more like you know 
architectural traditions, design materials and, and trends and so on. And then the final piece is phenomenology. What's it like to be in the building? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I think they're the main building blocks. I might be forgetting yeah, one. That's what I remember. Um, and Tim, do you know what? That has brought it together nicely because we've we've touched on pretty much all of those subjects. And I just wanted to leave our listeners with that visualization. So I've got this Lego this Lego house that you've built with this blueprint in my head. And I hope our listeners have. And Tim, I just want to finish by saying thank you. Like I, I could have chatted you for like at least 20 hours. And um, if we meet, if we could ever get to meet in real life, I'm going to bring some Lego and I'm going to bring some permanent marker. We're going to actually, we're going to build this house together. That sounds good. I'd love to do that. That sounds good, Matt. Enjoy your, um, well, it's your morning. It's my evening. Um, okay, yeah, you too. I hope your daughter feels better yeah thanks tim and enjoy enjoy that that is it what's the weather like in seattle at the moment classic seattle mix it's gonna rain but it's been sunny this morning we had a nice walk so <laughs> but yeah, no it's quite nice we'll sounds like london. sounds like london but you've got mountains around you right yeah cool. nice thanks, to see tim. you matt it's been great cheers catch you later bye yeah take care bye